it's definitely much easier to, to ship weirdo stuff and, and try things out. And further, like I, I know that at least in some cases, background talk, people not putting their names on the record, that people look at Brave as like kind of the, the point of the spear as doing like the strangest stuff or, or, or but trying stuff out that they would be nervous and curious to see what will happen. So on that, extra, on that end, it's way easier to try weird stuff in Brave. Welcome to the Technical Marketing Handbook, a podcast sponsored by Simmer, where we talk about the technologies, concepts, and phenomena relevant to those working in digital marketing. Today, our topic is ad blockers, and we are joined by a true authority on the subject. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Technical Marketing Handbook. My name is Simo Ahava. I am your host, and I'm also the co-founder of Simmer. For those working in analytics and in digital marketing in general, ad blockers seem to be a point of contention. On the one hand, we celebrate the privacy advances that blocking potentially harmful third-party scripts entail, but on the other, we curse at the loss of data that follows. Ad blockers, content blockers, and privacy blockers all seek to take control on behalf of the user. Essentially, they block harmful scripts from being downloaded, and they also block network requests from being sent by the browser. There's always some type of a prescriptive list that determines which request should be blocked and which script should be blocked based on matching the domain name or other parts of the URL of the script or the request. Um, Browsers such as Firefox, Brave, and Edge incorporate blocking mechanisms directly, so it's not just a browser extension as ad blockers have traditionally been. Um, Blocking potentially harmful resources seems to have very little downside at first glance, because no one really wants uh, crypto miners or fingerprinters to run their scams in the user's browser. And there's also an increasingly large population of people who simply don't want to see any ads. And this population is particularly interesting as it's really impossible to say what the intent of their use of an ad blocker is. Some might want to block ads to make pages load faster as these pages no longer need to expend resources to load scripts and images. Some might want to block ads to preserve privacy as they're worried about what data advertisers will be able to siphon off the user. And some might want to block ads because they simply don't care. The point is, we don't know why any given user uses an ad blocker and we don't know why any given ad gets blocked. Now, one of the problems that follows is that there are certain scripts and utilities that look like ads, but really aren't. Or, or maybe they are ad scripts, but they are used for something completely unrelated. An example close to my heart that comes to mind is Google Tag Manager, which is often blocked by browsers and ad blockers. Now, GTM itself isn't an advertising or data collection machine, but the majority of GTM users certainly use it for this. However, it's possible to run Google Tag Manager without doing any data collection whatsoever. And some people do use it for enhancing the site experience, running A-B tests and stuff like that. If GTM is blocked, then a potentially significant part of the user experience on any given website can be lost. In these cases, the question arises, is it okay to circumvent ad blockers 
if we're not actually doing any advertising or other privacy-infringing tasks, so speaking on behalf of the site owner. Well, that might be okay if you want to err on the side of the user choosing to use the blocker because of ads specifically, but what if they use a blocker to improve performance? I'm personally against wasting resources to try to circumvent ad blockers just to get more data. I think this approach has the potential of disrespecting the user if our guess for why they use the blocker is actually wrong. However, there are gray areas all over the place when it comes to ad blockers. Who gets to decide what gets blocked? Who takes responsibility for critical site functionality breaking down? Is there any innovation in the space or is it just prescriptive lists of domain patterns and paths that need to be blocked? Well, I'm so excited to introduce my guest who's the perfect person to answer my questions. Pete Snyder is the Senior Privacy Researcher and Director of Privacy at Brave Software, the company that's created the Brave browser and quite recently actually Brave Search. He's got a long list of research publications to his name, mostly around privacy engineering, data security, and new standards and practices for developing browser privacy controls. He's an active member of the W3C, where he pursues topics relevant to privacy aspects of new web standards. The list of resources and research material he's contributed to is impressive, so I urge you to take a look at his website linked to in the show notes. Pete was kind enough to take the time out of his busy schedule and we had a great chat about ad blockers, browser standards, and more. We'll jump to the interview right after these words from our lovely sponsor. Are you a marketing or a data professional looking to skill up? Take a look at the online courses Simmer has to offer at teamsimmer.com. The courses are completely self-paced and your enrollment will grant you lifetime access to the material, including any updates. Go to teamsimmer.com and use the coupon code HANDBOOK to get 10% off your course purchase. That's teamsimmer.com. Pete Snyder from Brave, could you please explain how ad blockers prevent the loading and showing of ads in a web browser? Sure. Um, just to distinguish, so people use the term ad blockers kind of for two different purposes. It's a kind of overloaded term. One is a piece of software that prevents advertisements from, a sh- from appearing on a browser. Um, and there's a bunch of d- different ways of doing that. And, and second is kind of like the broader um, category of re- what are really kind of like content blockers or just like browser intervention tools that aim to apply a bunch of different policies to change a site from what the developer intended to what the user desires and ad blocking is is one application of that technique but those terms are sometimes used interchangeably and so i can answer either of those questions where i could try to answer both well i think content blocking is is kind of the more generic term uh, or, or or covers more basis so we'll go with that this time sure um so kind of blocking then is um usually people people mean is uh ways of making decisions over um network requests before they happen it's not all it is but that's kind of the common case in the most common way most common case for that is usually the, the uh, tools that consume filterless rules, usually in the uh, the AdBlock Plus format, which are things that look kind of sort of like regular expressions that are basically just rules, like trust statements over URLs. So URLs that look like this and have these kinds of properties should be blocked, and URLs that look like this shouldn't, or things along those lines. And it gets there's a bunch of uh, kind of crazy ways those rules can get complicated, and I could talk more about that. But um, broadly, that's generally what people mean is, is, is 
blocking, not making network requests that, that aren't desired, and then potentially additional kind of interventions that can be done in the browser to um, remove the side effects or, or cosmetics or whatever of, of things that weren't able to be blocked at the network. Why are they used? I mean, um, what do you think the main motivations people have? Is it is it always about privacy? Is it about speed or performance? Is it uh, for the most knowledgeable people, I guess it's also about avoiding those tricky attack vectors that nobody else really knows about. What do you think the main motivations are? Yeah, so, so this has really been surprising to me. So I, I came to Brave th uh, thinking people care about Brave for privacy and everything else is just kind of like stuff you put on the sticker. And that's really been a surprise to me. I mean, I think probably the majority of people who use Brave care about it for privacy reasons. But something that's been hit, hit like that's hit me over the head a whole bunch of times since working here is that people want to block stuff for a variety of reasons and, and, privacy, and privacy isn't the main one. So I've been totally just like sobered out by how many people just want to like save battery life. And that really just means like find the minimal subset of, re of resources that I make, make those and make nothing else. I don't care what the intention is behind those requests. I just want the bare minimum number of things to get the pixels on the page to let me do what I want to do. Um, so that's maybe one extreme. The other extreme is um, I, I want, pri I don't care what happens on the page. I just want my privacy protected. And then there's a bunch of, bunch of kind of spots in the middle which are eh, i i want to kind of have some kind of split the difference thing with the with the site where i'll allow certain kinds of things i might not want but i'm willing to, to tolerate um but i just kind of want to swing swing the decision back in my favor or, or, or trade it off so when when brave implemented ad blocking was it there from day one was it already blocking certain ads when when the first version came out Uh, I believe so. I wasn't there from day one, so I can't say 100% for sure. And Brave has its roots and some really kind of like things that are really just kind of prototypes that were nothing, don't really have much deep connection to, to Brave as it is today. But as far back as I know, there's always been some form of content blocking engine built into Brave. Um, sometimes there's been multiple, which has caused bugs and, and some surprising things, but uh, there's always been something to do stuff that looks ad block plus so you block origin like in the browser right. and now there's there's that uh, that a, a dramatically more powerful set of tools on top of it and brave still uses kind of a a block list of processes that there's a prescriptive list of of host names and pattern matches that are looked for in those network requests or is there some algorithmic decision making going on as well so the, brave does a bunch of things now so the, um we ship a whole bunch of filter lists uh, so it's easy list easy privacy black origins lists some compatibility lists, some other things. Those are all open source and, and, and set explicitly. And there's also additional lists that people can toggle on if, if, if they want to get wild with it. And then there's a bunch of kind of like quasi-clever stuff that Brave does. But mostly we try to do it um, server-side and use that to populate lists, not to do it at runtime on the client. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, one is that maintaining extremely, um, like, Systems that need to be very aware of different parts of the of the browser engine in Chromium is extremely difficult, uh, given how fast upstream moves and how not malicious but indifferent Chromium is to, to kind of those goals of Brave, uh, and so that really that really pushes us to try to push complexity to places that aren't the browser and to make the the browser side of it as right. not simple by any means, but um, to limit the cost there. Right. Um, and then there's other things that we do that are kind of like content blocking um, that are algorithmic, that are, are happening in the client, but they are not decisions over network rules. Right. So they're not too intrusive on page performance or, or device performance. Yeah. And those are things like storage, uh, like store, like kind of a novel approach to managing browser storage, a pretty novel or, or unique set way of defining its browser fingerprinting. Um, some kind of like try to trade off between, uh, we're going to try to block 
cosmetically things that we think look like third-party ads, not first-party ads. That's a, a right. unique thing that Brave does. It's algorithmic and, and some other things like that. But the guts of it is, is filterless and maintaining filter lists. One of the things I've, I've been curious um, about for a long time is you have these filter lists and they're, well, they're mostly available for anyone to look through. I mean, they're, they're open source, many of them, and um, they take suggestions from the community. But who, who owns the lists? Who governs them? Who makes the decision on whether a, a host name should be added to those lists? What's the process there? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be like uh, infuriating to anybody who, who's, who's been unhappy with the filter list at one point. But the, the point is that shockingly little like it's like basically four people who do this like you know on their coffee break during their it's it's extremely casual um we wrote some there's a couple papers we had they're all kind of touch on this one is just kind of like i think we call oh yeah we called it who filters the filters or whatever and and but the point being that easy list largely has four maintainers one is now employed by brave um one is employed by io the people who make adblock plus i don't remember who their other two maintainers are but they're they contribute at a lower level, but I believe the main easy list maintainer is now a brave contractor. That's a can of worms to say. And so I want to just clear the air or, or clear my throat a little bit and just say like, we are ext extremely, extremely cautious about pushing brave needs into easy list. And I can point to a whole bunch of places where we've made our, our life much more difficult by pushing things downstream into a brave maintained set of patches against upstream. Uh, that's a, a serious like thing that I take important to like, Easy list is not a a, a brave project. Right. It is a tool that Brave pulls in and makes changes to to do Brave goals. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so the point is that there's a a huge tail of people who contribute to these things. There's an extremely small number of people who make the final decision about like what gets merged. And in some cases, there's some lists that are not even that are even less maintained. Like Easy List and Easy Privacy is well, one like those. If you're a person who finds those tools useful, like those people just do like. God's work or whatever. That's yeah. a silly way of putting it. But I, I just mean like totally thankless work. They don't get paid for it until extremely recently. And even, even then, uh, most people most people contributing those projects don't get paid for it. They get shouted at constantly. They're, they have constantly a five-alarm fire about some rule broke, something that they've never seen. Um, but despite all that, like there's actually a surprisingly large amount of like at least documentation that goes in, goes into this. And and so I I don't want to sound like I'm bagging on them. Like they, they do extremely good work in triple so under like the pretty difficult constraints that they work under the limitations they have do you know if there's ever been efforts to turn it into some kind of a standards project um or or to have a, a larger governing body that would be um well more populated first of all but also maybe devoid of too many biases or have enough biases so they even themselves out yeah i'm not aware of anything that's standards in like w3c standards body kind of standards and i'd be amazed if anything ever 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 came out of that that, that was the kind of uh, whatever long list of arbitrary decisions that are called a standard. I don't think that's likely to, to ever have much appetite there. But um, easy list, easy list is kind of in the middle of a spectrum. Like on one extreme, our list, like Peter Lowe's list, which is just a set of host, basically what used to just be like a host file that you w get it around the web or whatever, and that's consumed by a lot of filterless tools too. And that's really just like did Pete get enough coffee when he woke up in the morning and, and made his choices? I mean, it's true. I don't mean to suggest that he's, he's trivial, but just that he is the sole arbiter of what goes on that list. And there is no governance process other than what does Pete think? Wow. Uh, and, and on the other extreme are things like disconnect, which aren't, don't produce filter lists rules that are in the Adblock plus format, but they do exactly the same kind of thing. And they, there's a one-on-one -on -one translation between them. And they have an extreme, they have a, a very kind of smoky room or very secretive, not public decision process, but they have a long set of like, of uh, documentation about the rules that they use. Sorry, I think I said that poorly. Uh, 
who makes those choices is not clear and it is not a public process at all, but they, they advertise the methodology that they follow. But, but that's, so that's, that's one extreme and Pete Lowe is, is on the other. Um, so when, when we have a situation where a, uh, a host name or a pattern is added to the list and, and it starts uh, looking through those network requests and, and seeing what should be blocked or prevented from loading in the browser, what do you do about breakage? So there are, there are scripts that have multiple purposes that are not only for tracking or not only for uh, producing, injecting content, but they can have some actual functionality on the site. So um, what are the options here? How, do you, how does a browser that actually does have a very impressive monthly active user base like Brave now, how do you prevent Brave users from being um, disadvantaged when using the web? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a million-dollar question that nobody has has an easy answer to. And and I can say, I think this is no secret to say, or this isn't a, a company secret or whatever. But like, I the claim I make to to brave C-suite folks or whatever is that I am sure that web compat compatibility issues from filter lists are the biggest like crisis that brave has, or like the biggest problem that brave has, at least in terms of not not figuring out how to pay the bills or whatever. Not that there's a worry about paying the bills, but whatever. Biggest technological problem that has that Brave has for retention or whatever. Um, and it's extremely difficult. I, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of options. Largely what people do is uh, do nothing and wait for... Uh, oh, sorry, the most common thing is do nothing and wait for people to report problems and then make exceptions to the rules. So don't try to fix what the filter list does, but wait till somebody complains about it and then at least just stop blocking stuff on that page. That is extremely unsatisfactory, but it is not technically difficult to do. So it's something that can, like non-technical crowdsource contributors can do and it's effective. People can at least make some kind of balance between functionality and privacy that way. It's not great, but it, but it works. Um, kind of, so, you, so you have a block list and then you have a list of sites where the block list shouldn't be active or something like that. Yeah, it's a little bit circular because those rules are also in the same filter list, or in okay. the same list. But but yeah, that's exactly. You have a, whole, a large list of rules and then a ex- surprisingly large list of exceptions. Yeah, so that's the, that's the common case thing. The next thing that, that some sites do um, or some some projects do is what's called um, resource replacements. Uh, and so this is Ublock Origin has done this for a long time. Brave has done it for a slightly less long amount of time. Firefox recently announced that they're doing something like this. Um, and this is basically saying instead of uh, blocking a thing or allowing it, let's have some third option, which is to like replace it with a, a stubbed out alternative implementation. And so this would be something like, I want to load Google Analytics on my, or a page needs to load Google Analytics, but if you block that, bad things happen on the page. So let's instead use some like hollowed out thing that has the shape of Google Analytics, but it doesn't actually do anything that has kind of privacy implications. Um, and that's a very extremely successful strategy, but it's also extremely difficult to do because you have people who have to like tear into extremely large chunks of code um, to reverse engineer how these you know heavily minified or whatever libraries work. It's awful, and so as a result, like it's just not commonly done. It's done, but it's it's done for only the most popular scripts on the most popular pages and whatever. Good good approach, but it doesn't scale. Another approach is um, stop me if I go on too long because this is a topic I could talk about for a long time. But I got at least two more two more, and then we can go into the weirdo stuff too. If you like uh, another option is um, to do like kind of runtime enforcement, and so this is something that a whole bunch of different browser vendors have tried at different times. Um, but basically to say something like, I'm not going to block a script, but I just want to control what the script does on the page. This is re- So maybe I'm going to load, not to keep picking on Google Analytics, but maybe I'm going to load Google Analytics, but I'm just going to stop it from accessing storage or, or something like this. And so that's when you can imagine how that would be a useful of, of, of blocking privacy stuff, privacy harm, but allowing functionality. Conceptually, this is a very appealing idea, but in practice, it's extremely difficult for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, the main one being... I mean, some of them are just like difficult but well understood. So like you don't actually have to just check the top, top script. You also have to check the call stack and the scope stack and stuff like that. That's 
difficult, but not impossible by any means. Um, some of them are just like fundamentally difficult because of trade-offs made elsewhere in the browser. What I'm thinking about mostly here is um, there's a whole bunch of tricks that V8 does. This is I'm most, I'm most familiar with, but I'm sure SpiderMonkey and Web, uh, JavaScript Core do similar things that optimize certain behaviors that make understanding where code came from extremely difficult after it's been compiled. So these are things like um, deferred compilation. There's a whole bunch of different queuing systems and code that, that gets put in there. It's very difficult to figure out where it came from in a form way, blah, 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 blah. The point being that there's a whole bunch of choices in, in JavaScript engines, mostly so that they can go fast, that make it extremely difficult to relabel this script came from that script or this code unit came right. from, from that file. So it make, so it's conceptually simple, but in practice, extremely difficult to, to roll out. Um, and then the last one is something that's kind of much more on the frontier, uh, or, or not frontiers, just the way of putting it, but um, just something that, that's kind of been on my mind, and I've talked to some people who've been kind of interested in it. Um, so right now, modern like JavaScript applications, including including websites, usually have Node-like build systems where you, you import a bunch of modules using things like npm and require and whatever. Um, and those are largely replacements because the ES mo ES6 module system didn't really exist or in, in its current form when, when, when those choices were being made in Node. But now that it does exist, a lot of people have said, boy, it would really be nice to not have to have this kind of like compiler-driven build step for, for your applications. Why don't we ship the, node, the, the module graph as it is to clients? Because that's like the most pristine way of doing it. And, and maybe you could like compile a whole bunch of modules at the same time. It would go faster, blah, 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 blah. Um, Nobody is doing that right now for a bunch of reasons that I could go into. But if you did that, and if we get that that make, um, get to a world where people were shipping the module graph instead of the minified JS file or whatever, uh, that would be a really neat thing. It'd be useful for for application builders because uh, there would be le less build steps. It would be useful for the browser because it could optimize different behaviors, and particularly be useful for people like me or, or blocking people because if you had like the information rich. Um, graph to make decisions on instead of the flat JavaScript file, you could be make be much more clever about the kinds of interventions you make. And you could make smaller interventions, which means breaking less sites. That was a long-winded way of saying uh, it is difficult. I could have guessed that the answer is that it is difficult. But the um, the what about other... So we're, we're still talking about um, blocking things and then we're talking about shimming things and stubbing things. What about... Is there a possibility of just allowing these um, scripts and pixels to do what they are doing, but prevent them from actually sending any useful information forward. And my, what I'm actually going after here is that there's a, a wonderful browser, Clicks, uh, the browser project, which unfortunately went down um, during the COVID last year and um, maybe related, maybe unrelated, just had to add some context here. But they had something that um, I was uh, curious about, which is they, they try to algorithmically identify which parts of the request could potentially be uh, a persistent identifier, for example. And so they started stripping those out if they noticed that the same type of ID was present in multiple requests on different pages, even on different sites. Do you think, do you think it's possible that these heuristics themselves will change to a more kind of intelligent approach rather than being, um, you know, just pattern matching and based on prescriptive rules? Um, and, and this kind of ties, maybe not directly, but um, maybe it's if you can kind of outline what your research with this so-called sugarcode project is, because that seemed not exactly the same thing, but also seemed to be having some kind of a more intelligent approach to these heuristics themselves. Sure. Um, a whole bunch of topics. So, so if I go down the wrong road, pull me back out. But um, yeah, about the Clicks project, project, I mean, so you may have heard that 
Brave is releasing a search engine. A lot of that comes has is involved the exact same people who come from clicks, and so we are. I'm very familiar with that system. Um, the, the the algorithm or the kind of like algorithmic heuristic approach that you're describing comes out of their human web work. Um, was a paper, boy, I wish I could remember where it was published, but there's a paper describing exactly that system. And it's very similar also to the system that they used to build their, they and now Brave used to build our search indexes, um, which is exactly as you say, you only want to visit pages or you only want to include pages that look like other people have already visited them. So you're kind of like imposing some kind of like canonity-ish kind of protections on top of stuff. I can go into like why that's a great defense in for a, if you if you don't think the the, the the site is trying to circumvent you or try to work around you, but it, but you can but any kind of system like that, uh, it'll be easy to to circumvent at the margins. Anyway, that's that's one idea, and and I could talk more about about that, how how that how that works in the in the click system, or at least as well as I remember it, and and the kind of considerations Brave is making there. Um, second one is uh, not the, exactly that heuristic, but but what you're saying is let's the approach of let's not try to make choices about what's good and what's bad, but let's limit capabilities in some kind of general way. Um, so, so that and and maybe there's web compat benefits that come out of that, or certainly there's at least less maintenance cost that comes out of that, and more predictability that comes out of that. I think it's a great idea. Uh, I think it's a necessary but not sufficient kind of approach. But, but what you're describing is largely the reason Brave does things like farbling fingerprints and partitioning storage, and why Safari is does is very cautious about making choices about what gets blocked or doesn't want to block stuff, but does want to partition storage and whatever else. Largely, that's the story that comes out of Google's privacy sandbox thing, although a much more nuanced and one that we could sure talk a lot about. But anyway, basically, the, the idea is being like, let's not be gatekeepers and say what's good and what's bad. Let's instead just like sandbox everything and, and make it so it's impossible for sites to do bad things. Uh, and I don't think these are incompatible approaches. Um, I do think that saying I'm not going to try to to block bad things when I know they're bad is in a way like browsers advocating their responsibility on behalf of users. But absolutely, like we sh- people who are building privacy tools should absolutely figure out ways to make it harder for sites to do bad things. I just don't think it's it's, it's enough in and of itself. It's just it's table stakes at this point. This actually nicely segues to another discussion on this topic is uh, you mentioned Safari, uh, you mentioned the privacy sandbox, and Safari and Chrome are obviously, um, they have a huge market share um, on desktop and, and mobile. And it, it seems to me like, obviously, they have to be very careful about the decisions they make because they impact immediately such a large part of of the uh, browser user base. And, and in the case of, of both of these vendors, they also have operating systems that are impacted uh, either directly or indirectly. Is the fact that Brave is still by many magnitudes smaller than these uh, on your user base, does it give you more liberty to try out stuff and pioneer things that could, if Safari or Chrome tried to do them, could be um, intercepted as an affront on or a, a direct attack on WebCompat, for example? Could, is Brave, and I'm, I'm not saying this in, in any way a belittling way, but is Brave small enough that you can kind of do stuff and willing to do stuff that bigger browsers couldn't do. So kind of not circumvent, but kind of go past the standards discussions and just pioneer and and pilot things. Yeah, uh, a bunch of thoughts there. One is that uh, I would say, and happily point to examples where the large browser vendors you talk to also just basically sidestep the entire entire standards process too. So setting that aside, um, yeah, absolutely. Like Brave is obviously in an extremely different situation than Safari and Chrome and Edge and, and even, even Firefox are. Um, so that's for sure the case. I'm not sure that that all means that Brave can be, can do things more easily than everybody else can. I think it, it, for sure I can think about ways that it cuts both ways. I don't know where the how that balances out, but like, yeah. On one hand, we can we can be like, I have a. I wonder if Farbling will be a useful way of replacing our fingerprinting protections, and I have to like basically have a coffee with Brendan and convince him, and then maybe 
give him design to people to me to implement or whatever. Like we can do stuff real fast or at least conceptually very fast. I, I basically have to convince two people or three people, you know, Bondi and, and Brendan and a couple of my boss, Ben and whatever. Those names don't mean anything to people listening. I apologize. Anyway, it's definitely much easier to, to ship weirdo stuff and we're and try things out. And further, like I, I know that at least in some cases, background talk, people not putting their names on the record, that people look at brave as like kind of the, the point of the spear as doing like the strangest stuff or, 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 but trying stuff out that they would be nervous and curious to see what will happen. So on that extreme, that end, it's way easier to try weird stuff in brave. But the opposite is also true. Like when Safari says they're, they're going to block something, every web developer worth their salt is going to update their website to accommodate that. They may, they may hate it. They might, maybe they'll even file a lawsuit. I don't know. But like people will change their, their sites to work in Safari. People will not change their browsers to work in Brave. And so in that sense, Brave's task is enormously more difficult. I don't know who has it easier, but I know that there are, there, there are things that cut both ways. There are a couple of examples of things that um, Brave has um, been in the spearhead for. And I think, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that you were out of the these browsers that we've been talking about now, you were the first to blanket block third-party cookies. Like Safari has had third-party cookie blocking since their first version, but they've had mitigations for um, visiting in first-party context first, at which point you, you kind of allow the site to seed. But but Brave has blocked cookies in third-party requests earlier than, earlier than Safari's complete block, which came only last year or the year before that? Uh, it's more, yeah, uh, I don't, I mean, this is like a long story of people trying something and then thinking, oh my God, what have we done and rolling it back over and over again? And I I, I don't claim to know the, the history thoroughly, but you, for sure you're right that Brave had a blanket, a default policy of never sending third, or blocking all third-party storage, including third-party cookies from day one. People will also point out fairly that we also shipped exceptions to, unbro- to that policy to unbreak sites. A very small number of exceptions, but, but exceptions nevertheless. And, and that's a fair criticism or at least a fair caveat but it, but it's true yeah brave, i mean I, I think it's still fair to say that brave has by far the most aggressive storage policy even now that we we, we don't block third party cookies anymore or we, we block them on network requests but now we partition them and make them storage in, in frames which is um an approach that we've we've learned from others but but yeah it, we're still doing by far the most aggressive kind of storage management. Maybe we could, for the benefit of, of listeners, just expl- if you could explain what partition storage means in um, comparison to just preventing access to storage altogether. Sure. Um, so uh, this is not a Brave. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, yeah, this is not a thing that Brave, this idea is not something that comes out of Brave, but um, Brave's run with it in a kind of unique way. But it, um, yeah, so, so in general, there's kind of a couple ways that you might, if you see a, an iframe, for example, that points to, I don't know, thirdparty.com and you see it over two, on fir- two different first parties, there's a couple things the browser could do. The browser could say, oh, okay, well, I know what first part or third party is. And so third party gets the third party storage area and there's just one storage area per, per domain and that's cookies and storage and, or local storage and all that other stuff. Another possibility is to say, I don't, uh, that seems scary to, to give them that tracking capability. I'm just going to block storage completely. And so third, that code and, and network operations happening in that third-party frame would just not see any storage at all. That's basically what Brave did until recently. And then um, c- kind of a third category is instead of to give thir- uh, third-party in this case a different storage area for each first party that it appears on. So that means code operating on thirdparty.org, this iframe, would see a different storage area uh, when it appeared under A than under B. Uh, that's broadly what partitioning means, but there's a whole bunch of differences about like how long a partition stays around for. Um, 
are there ways to punch holes in partitioning for people who, who want to give a th third party back unrestricted partition, unpartitioned storage? Blah, blah, blah. There's a whole bunch of differences, but those are kind of broadly the three approaches people are taking. You're still allowing access across site boundaries uh, between two domains to access each other's storage, but you're just preventing that storage from leaking out to other first parties. So being able to sniff the shared partition from other first-party contexts. If a uh, if third party appears on A and third party appears on B, that doesn't mean that A gets to access third party storage. Right. Third party oh, still yeah. There's no like things can't talk across the the origin boundary. Uh, that's that's just the same origin policy in, in effect. Um, it's just that it's it's all about like what cookies does code running in third party under A C versus B right. and all the other stuff that lies with cookies. All right. Thanks for the clarification. The the other feature I had in mind was, and this is this is a very interesting thing that Brave does because I, well I haven't seen any other browser do this before or since, and it seems like a very heavy-handed thing to an otherwise kind of elegant approach to uh, blocking and, and tracking protections. But the idea of stripping out URL parameters that have been um, listed, so uh, just a, a, a self-managed list of URL parameters that need to be stripped from URLs. What's what's the do you know the background of that decision or, or how did that come to buy? So there's the Facebook click ID, the Google click ID, the MailChimp ID, the Microsoft click ID. So all these different types of advertising parameters that are obviously being used to pass identities around, but to strip them completely out of the URL. Um, that's an interesting approach that I haven't really seen <clears throat> anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, a couple of, one is that like, yeah, Brave, I think alone does that by default, although, um, Firefox does something similar for Facebook redirections in the refer field, I think. But but yeah, I, I think that's. I'm confident that Brave is, is the most aggressive by a country mile in this case. Um, and and I know for a fact that we're about to roll out a whole bunch of additions to that and expansions of that capability. Ubuck um, Origin, I think, now has the ability to strip some query parameters too, if you're if you're interested. But uh, yeah, the the reasoning behind that is that um, while partitioning storage is is an extremely useful kind of like broad clever approach to preventing linking, it is almost like too clever by hand. I don't know. That, that's, I'm not sure. I, I, whatever. Um, what I mean is that uh, there are other ways that people link cross, like link you or, or link cookies or, or track you across boundaries that aren't just like per typical generate, store, transmit, persistent identifiers. That might be fingerprinting. That might be um, syncing profiles based on your email address or some other identifier you provide to the site or your credit card number or whatever else. But there's there's a gazillion other ways that people try to link session behavior um, or link link storage areas. Broadly, this falls into something called bounce tracking, which is um, uh, not itself a totally well-defined thing, but it's all basically, but sits in this kind of pool of, of tracking technique where you assume that each storage area is completely partitioned and, and can't see across each other, but people want to like attackers want to be able to link those storage areas and say like, these are distinct, but I know that they both belong to the same person. And and bounce tracking and, and things that look bounce tracking like are a way of doing that um, uh, by pushing identifiers across those first party boundaries. Uh, and so all, all the kind of query parameters you mentioned are uh, I don't know if they're bounce tracking or things that are just bounce tracking like, but they're ways of pushing identifiers across first party boundaries for the most part. Um, and so there's a bunch of things you can do about that, but stripping them out is, is the easiest one. Uh, and and so it, uh, people have criticized it, uh, understandably, as being not a, like a foundational or like fundamental kind of protection. And I think that's certainly true. Like we we see the system that's deployed now and and exploit its weaknesses to protect our users or whatever. Uh, and and 
and so there's a cat and mouse game but if you're playing a cat and mouse game it's better to be the cat and the mouse right like just it's, it's yeah uh and so anyway yeah point being that like that is a weird uh, not a weird but like a unique thing that brave does among at least in terms of default policies that brave the uh, default policies that browsers have brave is going to do a lot more of it very shortly um uh and other things that are kind of like that and but it's to prevent bounce tracking and things that look bounce tracking like Right. Moving towards wrapping this this interview up, but I have a couple of um, questions. And the first one would be like a, a general bit of advice or, or peering into the crystal ball. But when you think about the whole field of, of privacy engineering and browsers and, and the kind of, which feels something like an uphill battle, but I think all browser engineering really is uh, working against public opinion many of the times and trying to make the web faster and more secure. Uh, where do you think the biggest wins will be in the near future when it comes to protecting the user's right to privacy um, by the browsers? Do you think the biggest wins are in, in restricting access to storage, for example, or are there some grander plans in the works? Uh, do you think Privacy Sandbox has the answer or... Where, where do you think we're going on with, with tracking protections? Uh, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the privacy sandbox approach. So I, and I could, we could talk more about that if it's of interest, but I don't think that's the answer, or at least I'm sure that's not the end of, of the discussion. There are good appealing parts of that proposal. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, maybe, about, uh, maybe not of interest to your users, or at least not the kind of thing they usually consider, but I think legislation is increasingly important. So Brave ships this thing called Global Privacy Control, for example. I, I played an extremely small role in, in writing that spec, extremely small role in writing that spec, um, but was have been involved in, in, in that um, discussion or that, that, that effort. And we now see like legislations, legislation and attorneys generals and people in like people to make these decisions, people in those roles saying, if somebody is sending the Global Privacy Control label in, or, or, or signal in your jurisdiction, that means you have to give them GDPR-like protect, protections, or you have to assume this under GDPR, you have to assume this under CCPA, or you have to assume this under whatever the, the, the relevant privacy legislation might be. And that is like, that solves entire categories of tracking harm that are extremely difficult to think about how to solve through technical intervention alone. So that, that I'm, I used to think that stuff was extremely boring. I now think it's like extremely important, even if it's still kind of boring. The legislation aspect is actually, I want to just quickly dig into that. Um, the The speed of technological um, development, obviously, um, you have roadmaps to follow, you have features to ship, and then compare that to the speed of how legislation progresses, which is snail-like in, in comparison, or glacial-like almost. Um, do you think, uh, how much is legislation behind the decisions you make on a, on a daily basis when shipping privacy-related features? Do you think about the implications of, for example, GDPR? Are you, are you implementing GDPR? Are you doing something orthogonal to GDPR? Do you still leave a backdoor open to circumvent GDPR? How, how much is it present in your thoughts these days and has it changed over the years to be more prevalent? I think you mentioned that legislation has become more important, at least to you. But do you think it's it's um, and and is it a guiding principle in in Brave's work, for example, these days? Yeah, I don't. I mean, the the, the global privacy control thing is a thing that is in Brave browser right now and, and is like delivering Brave users tangible privacy improvements. So it's in it's my mind to that that degree. Um, and the GPC group that you know we have a call once a week or so, and and it's in my mind to the point where like boy, we really ought to figure out ways to get more legislation to hook into this because this seems like it's solving categories of problems that have been you know. Kelsaturn or whatever. Uh, but in terms of like moving fast and moving slow, I mean, I'm not sure I, I, I know that start like whatever, move fast and breaks things, that kind of thing. But like, I kind of think that's horseshit. Uh, Google says they need three years to remove third party cookies. Like that's not like moving fast, y'all. Like that's mm. like, you've been doing a bad thing for 20 years or for 10 years. And now you need three more years to stop doing it. Like that's not moving fast. That's, that's 
procrastinating intentionally to preserve uh, a certain market that places you in a preferable position. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm not here to say that legislation is fast or nothing. I'm just saying things move fast when they need to move fast, right? Right. To kind of wrap things up, um, first of all, thank you, thank you so much for, and I know that you've been a bit under the weather, so you've been extremely kind to to accommodate this interview in your schedule. Um, but I want to kind of wrap things up with a little thought experiment, and um, I am going to give you temporary godlike powers now, and by the snap of your fingers, you can change any aspect of the internet, any anything related to your work um, as a privacy researcher, as a as a browser engineer. Um, and, and, and it can change the status quo to whatever direction you like. And so I'm, I'm interested in knowing what would you do with that power and why would you do that? I'm not sure I would, I'll say the same thing tomorrow, but the thing that comes like, the, 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 I think off the top, you know, sitting here right now is I think not a change I want to see embraced specifically, but a change I want, I, want to, I, want, I would love to see in terms of the decisions that browser makers make, which is I want browser makers to be more opinionated and more responsible with their users. And, and so that is to say is I think browser users should not say, well, we just got to create a, a set of laws and sites will do what they do. And so let's create a good set of laws and, you know, head out for lunch early or whatever. That sounds, that's dismissive. And I don't mean to be totally flip about it, but like, I hope browsers will say like, I see a bad piece of code on the web and I am going to arbitrarily stop that from happening in my in the browser for users because I don't think the people who use my browser want that. I also wish that there would be, I mean, if you sit someone down, some browser PM somewhere will, will say the right thing and know, knows the text to, to copy paste. Um, but just manifestly, users are not the number one priority for for at least two of the top prior, top browsers right now. I mean, unambiguously. Uh, they will say otherwise, but just plainly the choices that are being made in the system are not users want this. They are, we need certain things to happen. And so what is a way that we can get users to tolerate them unambiguously? And that seems like straight up evil and awful and like we'll wind up as batteries in the matrix if we keep doing this for a couple of years. That was a very eloquent answer. Thank you so much. Um, to, would you like to tell our listeners how to follow you, how to find your your writings? How what's the best way to keep up to date on what you're working on? Sure. Um, if you're interested in reading, you know, uh, boring twelve point conference publications or whatever, uh, I have a website at Peter E. Snyder that lists them, and most of those are, or a good chunk of those are at brave slash brave dot com slash research too. Uh, I have a Twitter handle or Twitter at uh, pes ten k uh, that I update a little bit. I'm I got a lot of Midwest in me, and I'm pretty conflict averse, so I don't talk. I'm not on Twitter too too often, but every once in a while, Brendan will nudge me, or something will really get under my skirt, or whatever, and I'll I'll, I'll jump on Twitter. Um, but otherwise, yeah, those are the two place, main places to keep in touch. Um, I'll just say for folks who might be listening, we're, we're interested in collaboration, or I'm interested personally in research collaborations. If um, if people are looking for have students or are looking for privacy friendly people to do privacy friendly research on. Wow, that's an excellent suggestion. Uh, we'll add all these things to the show notes for people to find. Uh, once again, thank you so much for making time for this um, and, and keep doing your great work. Um, I'm sure that you'll, you'll get at least a couple of new followers, hopefully, through this, through this podcast and um, supporters of what, what Brave is doing for the web and what you are doing privately for Brave and for the web as a consequence as well. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you later. Thanks again, Pete Snyder, for that interview on the Technical Marketing Handbook. If you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe using whatever podcast service you enjoy taking your podcast with. And tell your friends and family, maybe give your long-distant relatives a call and tell them all about this podcast so that they can subscribe and hear the next episode as it comes out in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, take care. <laughs>